Earlier this year, on episode 132, we discussed Christopher Paul Curtis's beloved The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963, on the podcast. Well, I couldn't stand to stay away from this author's work for too long. On episode 162, we are discussing another one of his books. In fact, the book he wrote as a follow-up to The Watsons. This one is called Bud Not Buddy. It was published in 1999 and won the coveted Newbery Medal the following year. If, like me, you were a child of the 90s or early aughts, I'd say the chances are pretty good that you grabbed this one from your school library, and it is my sincere hope that young readers continue to pick it up for years and years to come. In Bud Not Buddy, readers get acquainted with 12-year-old Bud, who is on a mission to find the man he hopes is his father after a narrow escape from a traumatic experience with a foster family. He's lost his mother and is battling the social and financial difficulties of the Great Depression. But he's not giving up in this quest, which will take him across the state of Michigan. As long as he has his suitcase full of special things, nothing can bring him down. Will Bud successfully reunite with his dad? Bud Not Buddy answers this question, and so many more, in a unique, kid-friendly style. My guest and I try our best to do it justice in this episode. We discuss the book's origin story and what inspired Christopher Paul Curtis to write it, along with his writing process. We talk about Bud's one-of-a-kind voice and how it perfectly walks the line between childlike innocence and hard-earned wisdom. We dig deep on the nuances of race and class as presented to us in Bud Not Buddy, as well as what the book teaches readers of all ages about this period in American history. We wrap up our conversation by chatting about the significance of names in the story and in African-American culture more broadly. I won't get into too many spoilers just yet, but my guest just might reveal that Bud Not Buddy is a new favorite book of hers. You'll have to keep listening for all the details. Today's guest is one of the hottest names in the YA world right now, and I feel so genuinely lucky to have had this time with her. Farida Abike Imide is the instant New York Times and IndieBound bestselling author of Ace of Spades. She is an avid tea drinker, a collector of strange mugs, and a recent graduate from a university in the Scottish Highlands, where she studied English literature. When she isn't spinning dark tales, Farida can be found examining the deeper meanings in Disney Channel original movies. Over the next hour, in addition to lots of conversation about Bud Not Buddy, you'll hear a bit more about Farida's experience writing Ace of Spades as a college student. It's a great story. Follow Farida on Instagram and Twitter at FaridaLikesTea. Follow SSR on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod, and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. I'd love for you to say, hey, social media really does help make the world feel a little smaller, and it's so fun getting to know members of the podcast community better in those spaces. Social media can also help spread the word about SSR. If you love what you're hearing, please take a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it, yes, like right now, and post it to your Instagram story. Don't forget to tag me at SSRPod so I can see it and share. You can also help spread the word about the podcast by posting a five-star rating or review of the show on Apple Podcasts. You're probably sick of all of your favorite podcasters asking you to do this over and over again, but I promise that we only do it because it makes an impact. Thank you in advance for those ratings and reviews. Thank you also to all of the SSR Patreon sponsors tuning in to episode 162. For those who don't know, Patreon is a platform that connects independent creators, like me, to superfans of what they make. SSR is an independent podcast, which means I handle every aspect of making it myself, without the financial support of a larger organization. The monthly contributions I receive from SSR's patrons make all the difference as I continue to produce and grow the podcast, and there's lots in it for you too. As a patron, you'll gain access to all kinds of cool exclusive perks, including newsletters, bonus episodes, SSR merch, reading recap videos, input on book selection, Patreon parties, and the SWR, that stands for Shit We Read, book club, which I personally facilitate. It's a ton of fun, and I would love to welcome you into the Patreon family. Learn more and join at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast, or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Find out more about how to support independent bookstores when you shop for audiobooks at Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M. We all love the feeling of directing our dollars towards small businesses instead of giant corporations, and Libro.fm makes that possible even if you don't happen to live near a brick-and-mortar independent bookstore. The audiobooks you get from Libro.fm are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. 
SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Rita, welcome to SSR. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you on today. We are talking about Christopher Paul Curtis's Bud Not Buddy, which was published in 1999. And listeners will know that a few months ago, we covered Christopher Paul Curtis's other very well-known children's book, although he has he has many others, but I would say these two um, really rocketed his career. The other one is called The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963. And I will be sure to link to that episode in the show notes for this one. But Farida, I would love if we could start by talking a little bit about why you wanted to read this book for the episode today, if you'd read it before when you were growing up, um, and if so, what memories you have of it. So I'm from the UK, and so um, I'm not familiar with this author's work or this book before being invited onto this podcast. And so it was kind of a a book that I like the premise of, and also I'm interested in classic literature by authors of colour, because often when you're in school you're studying kind of dead white authors and so i was really intrigued by that but i've never heard of this book and this is the first time i've heard of it that's so interesting to me and we've had a few other guests from outside of the us on the show and i'm always fascinated by kind of like what makes it to other countries of american lit for kids and what doesn't and i remember these books being everywhere when I was a kid. And just it's kind of interesting to think about like what ends up being of interest to children in other countries and what just doesn't. Yeah, actually, it's so interesting to me as well. I think the classics we read that are American usually cover the Great Depression. And that's mm. about it. It's it's really like that period in the 20s and 30s. But other than that, we literally don't have the same classics. Like even um, there's a book I recently discovered called Where Where the Wild Things Are. I've heard that's a huge picture book in America, Uh but um, I only found out out about it because I studied children's literature at university. So that was really interesting too. Oh, wow. That's so cool. So would you mind sharing a little bit about like what books you were into when you were a kid, like when you were around the age that maybe you would have read Bud Not Buddy, just because I'm curious since I rarely get a chance to talk to somebody who wasn't raised in the U.S. about this. Any favorites that you want to share with us? So I didn't start reading properly, I guess, until I was 12 because I'm dyslexic. And so I really struggled with reading when I was younger. And so I think my favorite books growing up, like the ones that were really kind of instrumental to me, like loving books and writing, anything by David Levithan, Patrick Ness. We also have this author in, a, in the UK. She's huge here, but um, I think she's not as well known in the US. Her name's Mallory Blackman, and she wrote a huge kind of classic, and she's black as well. And it's called Knots and Crosses. It came out, I think, in 1999 as well. And it's really big. And it was the first time I'd actually seen um, a character that looked like me in a YA book. Hmm. I think I've actually had a few people mention Knots and Crosses to me for consideration for future episodes. And I'm not familiar with it. I'll have to I'll have to do a little bit more research. I'm also a big fan of David Levithan as well. We've done a couple of his books on the podcast, so I can link those in the show notes for listeners who want to check those out. But thank you so much for sharing. And I'm excited to hear what your experience with this book was like since it was brand new to you. I'll set up a little bit of context for the book first, uh, just for listeners who need a little bit of a refresher. So as I mentioned, the book was published in 1999. Um, it was the follow-up to The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963. And there's a really interesting foreword in the edition that I have. I I don't know if you had this, Farida, as well, but um, it's written by Christopher Paul Curtis, sort of in celebration of the 20th anniversary of Bud Not Buddy. And he talks about how worrying it was to go to schools and 
hear all of this amazing feedback about the Watsons go to Birmingham. And even kids would say things like, well, how are you going to top the Watsons go to Birmingham for your second book? Like, what are you going to do next? And he talks in this forward about how he really kind of had to try not to let that interfere too much with his writing process as he was figuring out what he was going to do next. I'm wondering if that's anything, if you can relate to that at all as a writer. Yeah, definitely. I think before I got published, I was really scared that my book would let people down and so I'd be like struggling with my second book. But it's been the opposite. People have been really, really happy and like excited and like really loving the book. And so now I'm like, I'm not sure how I'm going to like impress them with a second book. So that's definitely uh, relatable. Yeah, well, I've heard the second book is a little bit of a mind game. So you and Christopher Paul Curtis, I think, are certainly not alone. But I loved reading about Christopher Paul Curtis's writing process when we did the Watsons Go to Birmingham episode because he wrote the whole thing in longhand. Like he would take these yellow legal pads and he had this routine where he would go to the library every morning before his like nine to five job. I can't remember now what it was, but he would set aside a certain amount of time every morning and he would just sit down and handwrite like long portions of the story. And he did the exact same thing for Bud Not Buddy. Bud Not Buddy was inspired by a couple of different things. He uh, writes a bit in sort of like the back matter of this book about how he was originally working on a story about a factory that he worked in when he was a kid growing up in Michigan. And this factory is really historically significant because there was a major sit-in that took place there. And he realized that he had never come across any content written for kids about that sort of a historical moment. So he was writing a story about that. And then as he was about halfway through that story, he went to a family reunion and he reconnected with a few family members who were talking about their grandfather, whose name was, I believe, Herman Curtis, who became the inspiration for Herman E. Calloway in the book. And he started writing a separate story about this musician named Herman Curtis. And the two stories kind of came together. And that's how we came to read but not buddy do you relate to any of that in the way that you come up with ideas for your own work um no I feel like that's so interesting writing in longhand um and also writing in the morning I can't really relate to that uh, I'm usually up at night until like 4 a.m writing on my computer but I really like I really want to try longhand one day that'd be really cool I start in longhand so listeners know I'm getting my master's in fiction right now and I'm I'm working on the first draft of hopefully a novel maybe and I always start in longhand because I I don't know I find like it's easier to get my ideas going when I'm writing something on paper and then of course you get to the point where you're like I can't keep doing this like this is hurting my hands and I'm starting to like the the moment when your brain starts to work faster than your fingers like that's such a satisfying moment so that's when I switch but I can't imagine writing an entire book on paper that's such an undertaking I've heard some authors do this and I really, I want to try it someday because it just sounds like a nice way to like, I don't know, divide like between, you know, a book written on a computer and something you're just trying to work out. Because I sometimes find it hard to like distinguish between the two and like the drafting process takes longer because of that. So yeah, I might try that one day. And also good luck on writing your novel. That sounds really cool. Thank you. I'm just just trying to follow in the footsteps of all these amazing authors that I get to talk to on the show, including you. So the book was really well received, and I'm hoping to be able to pepper in some of the reviews that I found as we continue this conversation. But it also went on to win the Newbery Medal in 2000, which is, of course, like the biggest deal in American Kid Lit. It's this award that's given to the most distinguished contribution to American literature in a given year, typically for a middle grade novel. And Bud Not Buddy has the distinction of being the only book to win both the Newbery Medal and the Coretta Scott King Award, which is dedicated to outstanding authors who are Black. So I think that's really cool. I had no idea that like this this book is like really special in that way to have won both of those awards. And also it's so ridiculous that it's the only book to have won both awards. Like we need more books to be winning both of those awards. But just a couple of little notes about what a big deal this book was when it came out. It, it won a lot of other awards as well, but those are some of the big ones. That's really, really cool. Um, I'm just so happy to hear kind of Black literature being celebrated in this way. I wish it was celebrated more, but um, I think this book is very deserving. Yeah, I agree. And I was trying to remember my experience with it. I know that I read it, but I was trying to work out the timing because listeners will know that I like 
was a very I, – I sort of became like a snobby reader as a kid because I just loved to read so much. And so very quickly, I like wanted to read above my grade level. And this book came out in 1999. I would have been nine, maybe eight if it came out earlier in the year. And I can see myself like being like, oh, this is a book for like younger readers just because I was sort of a pain in the butt that way when I was a kid. It must have found its way to me in this sweet spot, like maybe before I became a snob and when I was in the right stage to read it. And I'm so glad that it did because it is such a special book and I'm really happy that I had the chance to read it so soon after it was published and out in the world. Yeah, actually, I just realized another reason why I might not have heard of it before is because I was born in 98. And so I would have been one when it came out. So that could have also yeah. been the reason. Yeah, you may have just missed it. Yeah. <laughs> that would make sense. But now I'd love to talk about the experience that you had reading it now as an adult. So the book is set in 1936 during the Depression. We meet our main character, Bud, not Buddy. Let's be very clear, as if it was not clear enough from the title, do not call him Buddy. Um, we meet him when he's living in an orphanage. And Farida, I would love to hear a little bit more about maybe what your first impressions were of meeting him for the first time ever. I immediately loved his character. I feel like the way he's written is just so kind of humorous and like very conversational. And so you feel almost like he's talking to you as a friend and just telling you, he's advising you kind of like, because he feels like he's an adult, even though he's only, I think, 10 years old. So it just felt very like warm and inviting and it just had that vibe throughout the book I really enjoyed reading it he has such a distinct voice and that's something that came up again and again in the reviews that I found and several of the reviewers point out specifically Bud's innocence and sort of the naive lens through which he views the world and I wanted to dig into that a little bit more because I agree I mean he he is looking at the world like a 10 year old he's a kid he's experiencing a lot of things for the very first time but simultaneously like he's seen some things he's been through some really hard times already at 10 and so it's this kind of interesting combination of an innocent childlike voice with a character who has been through hard things and is continuing to go through hard things as we move our way through the story. How did that strike you? Yeah, I really feel like something that kind of stood out to me is the way he views adulthood. There's like a line where he says that people think that you become an adult when you're like 18. But in his opinion, you become an adult at six because people start to punish you. Adults start to speak down to you and speak to you kind of harshly and also it's the age where he saw his mum die um, and saw her body and so it was so just interesting his innocence and the way he just saw the world and I thought it was also very unique I just really enjoyed reading it I thought that Bud was a character that like really like really had almost like not an adult mind in the sense that the book was written as though it's not a child but like he just had a maturity to him and it was both sad in the sense that, you know, his innocence was somewhat taken from him, but also really endearing because while he was mature, you could tell that the way he saw things, it was very much through a child's eyes. Like he really believed in supernatural things and he like, he just had a conviction in the way he thinks about the world. And I just thought it was so nice to see. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. And I would add that I think he kind of goes back and forth throughout the book. Like there are these moments where we really see him in this more wise adult way. And then there are moments when he is such a kid. And I thought that the author did such a lovely job of weaving those two things together. Like it didn't feel jarring. It didn't feel forced. It felt very natural to me. Like the moments when Bud was acting like a kid, I was like, okay, this is a moment when he would be acting like a kid. And the moments when he was forced to be more mature felt like, you know, it all felt called for and paced correctly. One of my favorite moments, and, you know, we're going to jump around a little bit, which is okay because we tend to do that in these episodes, but there's a moment later on in the book where he's been brought into this family of musicians and they're letting him stay there if he agrees to do chores and kind of like earn his keep with them. And um, I think it's like a whole chapter actually about this, which was interesting, but he's mopping the floor and he is imagining that he's like a character and I think – 10,000 leagues under the sea or something like he's playing pretend in the way that I think kids generally do. And I had a note at the top of the page that was like, Oh my gosh, here he is being a kid. Like we've seen him 
go through all of these struggles throughout the book. He's traveling alone. Like he's trying to figure so many things out. And I really appreciated the fact that Christopher Paul Curtis made the choice not only to include that moment, but to like give it its own chapter because it made me think like, oh, we're supposed to notice that after all of this, here Bud is like doing what kids do, just kind of like using his imagination. Yeah, exactly. I also feel like, you know, some people might see it as, I guess, a chapter of just like slice of life or a chapter that doesn't really have any real importance in the general scheme of things in the book. But I think it was so important to show, especially a Black child, just being a child, because I think often Black children, because of just the trauma that we often go through and experience, especially when you're from a lower socioeconomic background, you know, you're often, you often experience adultification. And I think just taking a break and being like, you know, this child is obviously seeing things, but at the end of the day, they're still a child and they should be treated with softness and be seen as someone who still dreams and still has the same experience as other children. And I really love that the author took the moment just to show that. Yeah, thank you for for sharing that further. I, I agree. And in or- I think it's so much more satisfying to have that moment because we've been with Bud I think that's that that seems probably about two thirds to three quarters of the way through the story. And so we've seen all of his other trials. And when we meet him at the beginning, he is getting ready to go to a foster family. And this family, they're the Amoses. And Bud is like, he, he seems like he kind of knows what to expect. He's been through this before. He's seen other kids at the orphanage go through this before. He is clearly wise beyond his years. He's offering advice to younger kids at the orphanage about like what to expect when they go to foster families. And the experience at this foster family's home is extremely traumatic. I was scared as an adult, knowing that this story was probably going to end on a happy note to some degree. I was scared. The way that Christopher Paul Curtis wrote these scenes was really powerful. His experience with the Amoses begins with a physical fight with the Amos's son, Todd. And Bud is like, you know, I I sort of don't blame him because if I had a, a real family and another kid came in and was trying to take my parents away, I would probably get mad too. So again, he has this wisdom about him where he's able to see situations in a way that I think most 10 year olds wouldn't. But the Amos parents get really angry with him because they are sticking up for their son and they lock Bud in a shed overnight. And the way that this scene is written, it is terrifying because you're seeing Bud take in what he thinks might be around him in the dark. He's afraid of vampire bats. He thinks there might be bats. He knows this family has guns around. Like He knows that there are scary things around him, and he just isn't sure exactly what he's dealing with in the shed. And, and I was scared too. I didn't know what he was really going to run into. Me too, especially because uh, you get kind of so into his his worldview. And because he has a wild imagination, it's almost like you're also imagining the weirdest things that could happen or the scariest things that could happen. And so I felt like it was like I was also in the shed with him. Yeah, I felt that way too. And and in the end, he he thinks that there's a vampire bat. And so he hits it with, I can't remember exactly what he uses, but it turns out that it's a hornet's nest, which is in fact way worse because he wakes up these hornets and he gets all of these stings on his body from these hornets, which sounds terrible. And he like kind of powers through with all this adrenaline. He breaks the window to get out of the shed. He has to get his suitcase. We haven't mentioned his suitcase before, but he has this suitcase full of things that are very important to him. And he needs to make sure that he has the suitcase before he can go anywhere. So he has to find it in the Amos's house. He has this moment where he's holding a gun, which I thought was really interesting. I think the gun was actually maybe stored in the Amos's kitchen. And when he sneaks in to get his things, we see him pick it up, which I thought was this really, really powerful image of this 10 year old boy like grabbing this huge gun and I wasn't quite sure what he was going to do with it because sort of in the same breath he talks about how the Amoses deserve what they get but then he also says like the most important thing was to get this gun sort of out of the mix of things because guns are dangerous like the author puts these two sentences basically back to back which I thought was a really interesting and smart choice. I agree. I actually was also scared that something bad was going to happen with the gun, but I'm really happy that the author kind of kind of reinforced that like that this is just a child and ha- and he has no malicious intent despite, you know, literally in that in the previous chapter being beaten up and abused. 
by the Amos's son. And so I really loved just the way that it's constantly being shown that Bud is just a little boy and any kind of preconceived notions we have about what a child from his background might do kind of needs to be like taken apart and like reevaluated. And so I really loved that. Yeah. And especially because he goes from this moment of having to seemingly make a big decision about what he's going to do with this gun to then being very much 10 years old and wanting to come up with a way to make Todd wet the bed because that's the thing that his mother hates the most in the world. Like there's this whole scene before about how um, Mrs. Amos like just can't tolerate bedwetters and she's making Bud sleep on a plastic sheet until he can prove that he doesn't wet the bed. And so, you know, we, we go from this kid who's dealing with major scary life and death issues before he can escape. He's like, hold on one minute. I have to make sure this kid peas in the bed before I go. I loved that as well. I thought it was so petty, but um, so funny and humorous. Yeah. I don't want to give the Amoses too much of our attention because luckily they don't take up a lot of space in the book and they're terrible and abusive. But I did want to bring up one quick note before we move on, which is that at first I, I was struggling to figure out if the Amoses were white or if the Amoses were a family of color, which felt immediately important because I kind of knew from my memories of this book that we were going to be getting notes of racism throughout the book and kind of just getting a sense of what the relationship between Bud and the world around him is like as he's making this journey. And at first I thought they were white, but then Mrs. Amos makes a comment along the lines of like, oh, I I actually pulled the quote out. Mrs. Amos says, I do not have time to put up with the foolishness of those members of our race who do not want to be uplifted. Yeah. Which just was a really striking line and I think is just like a reminder to readers and this is still true today that like it's not just about race it's also about socioeconomic status it's about you know there are so many different ways in which people choose to sort themselves and then to hate others and to sort themselves into different isms and I was just like trying to think about why Christopher Paul Curtis would have made that choice I think it would have been really easy for him to just be like this is a white family that's going to it, it would have I don't know I expected him to make that choice and this was just unexpected for me. Actually, I really, I understand the choice he made and I feel like I'm almost relieved that it wasn't a white family because the connotations would have been different and I would have been even more frightened about what would happen to Bud. But I'm kind of um, also happy about the nuance there because uh, number one, it kind of, it kind of like highlights the fact that like black people aren't a monolith, but also I feel like he was almost making a commentary on the, I'm trying to find the word for it, but um, basically just thinking about the time it was set in America and what black people were up against during that time, I can imagine that there was a lot of kind of tensions between people that wanted to kind of rise up and kind of get the wealth and the power that had been taken from them very, very recently in history. And then people that were still suffering the kind of the repercussions of systematic violence and the Jim Crow laws, everything that was going on during that time period. So I feel like it was a very interesting way to show Black people's reactions um, to the circumstances at the time historically. I, I think I do the same in my book as well. I kind of wanted to show the difference in the social classes and how people react to their circumstances. So I think him doing that was really clever and relieving, like it's a big relief because I think it would have been a completely different story um, and probably taken a different turn if the family were white or non-black. Yeah, that's also interesting to think about. And this just occurs to me now, and it's not explained explicitly in the book, but I also wonder if at this point in history, like Bud is probably living in an orphanage that is all black children. Like I I can't imagine that this is a time when like there are integrated orphanages and unfortunately and horrifyingly, I would imagine that it's mostly black families who are signing up to take in black children who are orphans. And of course, that's this whole like the whole dynamic of adoption has evolved in a way that I know is very complicated and certainly for another episode, at least here in America. Um, There's a lot of conversation about white saviorism in adoption today and that sort of thing. But yeah, there's just a lot of fascinating dynamics at play with respect to race in this book. And 
that moment with Mrs. Amos. And it's tucked in. It's like this tiny little detail in this long line of dialogue from her. Like we have no other indication until then um, of what this family looks like. But I was like, hmm, my ears perked up. And I was like, all right, that's our first note about how Christopher Paul Curtis is commenting on race in this time in his book. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned that. And I really appreciate you sharing your take as well. So Bud leaves. He takes off and very endearingly to all of the book lovers out there. His first thought is he wants to go to the library. The library is really his safe place. It's where he used to go with his mom. There's a librarian named Miss Hill who he's very close with and he is like, he's sure that she'll protect him. But she, of course, has gone off to get married and so she's not around anymore. And he can't sleep in the library. He ends up sleeping under a Christmas tree outside, which is just this heartbreaking visual. But also, again, he's 10 years old. And like a 10-year-old's kid is like, oh, yeah, I'll sleep under a Christmas tree. Like, of course, that's where you would sleep if you had to sleep outside. And I'll, I'll probably sort of cruise through a lot of these moments of his journey just because he is on a bit of a road trip. And um, his destination is is really where I think we get into a lot of the other interesting meet here, but he links up with another friend from the orphanage named Bugs, and they decide that they're going to try to jump a train west, which was a thing that people were doing in this area in Michigan quite a bit during this time. And his interaction with Bugs gives us a chance to visit a Hooverville, which I certainly remember learning about quite a bit when I was in school. And we're seeing it through Bud's eyes. It's not something that he was familiar with before. He comments on how there's this um, impressive mix of people. Everybody looks different, all different ages, all different races. And they're all kind of trying to figure out where to go from here. Most of them do want to move west where there's more opportunity. Is this a part of American history that you were familiar with? Uh, No, actually, this is the first time I was hearing of it. I remember reading about it when I was probably in middle school and high school and being fascinated by it. And just like how we allow these things to happen and and how we continue to allow them to happen in our country here. Uh, You know, this is certainly not something that we have done away with, unfortunately. But seeing it through Bud's eyes was really fascinating. He meets a girl named Deza Malone. He has his first kiss in a Hooverville. And he doesn't make it on the train with Bugs. Bugs makes it on the train. Bud can't quite keep up and jump on the train. But Bugs is there to make sure that he gets his suitcase and all of his special things before he takes off to go across the country. But Bud is left alone again. But he meets a man named Lefty Lewis who teaches him some other really interesting things about what is going on in America at this time. And Bud gets a chance to learn about labor unions and labor organizing. And there have been a few other books that we've talked about on the podcast that sort of give kids a glimpse into the world of labor organizing. And I just, I think it's so interesting. I don't remember sort of putting two and two together when I was a kid reading this book. Like I, maybe I was too young to understand what was going on here, but I so appreciate authors like Christopher Paul Curtis that are trying to share this information about social issues, about labor issues with kids at this young age through a character like Lefty Lewis. What do you think? Yeah, I really loved the way that it wasn't, it's almost like he was like he was giving us historical phenomenon and like context without like info dumping. He was just kind of introducing a character and making it really a dynamic introduction into a concept or a thing that's happened. And I really, really appreciated that because there just was never a dull moment. And so, yeah, I loved learning about that as well. He also teaches Bud about the dangers of traveling in the United States as a Black person during this time in history. He advises Bud not to be out late at night alone. Um, They're in a sundown town. So he is basically like, you need to be inside at night. And all this is new to Bud. He has been living in an orphanage for the last couple of years, and he hasn't really had anybody to explain this to him. So again, these are like I I just thought that the sort of strategies that the author used to, as you mentioned, like organically introduce readers to these horrifying like pieces of American history were really interesting. And, And here through this conversation about labor organizing, we also get quite a bit of information about the police at this point and how there's so much animosity between 
the police and labor organizers and unions and also people of color. And I was just like making so many notes in the margin as I was reading this section because this conversation has continued. And I'm just curious like how kids in 2021 would process some of this content about the police because unfortunately, like they're still seeing this police violence on television and especially young readers of color, like I'm sure I would imagine that there's just this feeling of like, well, yeah, I mean, they were talking about this in 1936. And it's still happening now. And it's frustrating as a reader. Yeah, I think something that really kind of terrifies me is the fact that I can read like a historical text, and it feels like it was written for today. Like I watched James Baldwin's speeches, and it feels like he literally recorded it this morning. And, you know, people often say that there's been such huge progress, and we're in such a better place and while there has been some progress I think just generally in the global north it's just terrifying how much hasn't changed even the sundown towns still a huge thing and I found out about that recently as well and I was just horrified I know that it's definitely in the UK anyway it's something that it's kind of, we don't have them formally, but it's definitely acknowledged that if you go to certain cities in the UK you should go in a group or you shouldn't stay out too late if you're a black person because people have gone missing, black kids have drowned. It's kind of like that phenomenon as well. And so it's just, while I really love learning about it and everything, I think teens today and like people that are black and other people of color reading this today won't be surprised that history has not really evolved as much as we've been led to believe it has. Yeah, like this feeling that maybe young Black readers in particular, like don't need to learn about this because they already know, like this isn't a surprise. I really think that like, this is why, you know, critical race theory is so important to still have in schools because it's something that is so relevant to today. Like history is affecting us today and it's continuing on because we're not addressing it. So, and I do think it's valuable still to young Black people to see this because I think when I was growing up, I didn't have books that could tell me this. Uh, I think that the author does such a good job at uh, introducing you to concepts. And it doesn't feel like it's written for non-Black people. It feels like it's also written for Black people. So I think it's such, such a valuable valuable book to kind of give people language to, to describe their, their kind of experiences as Black people in this world. And so, yeah, I think such an important, such important like lessons have been taught through this book in such an organic way, as you said. Yeah, and I'm glad that it is a book that people are still reading. Like it's it's so great when you when a book like this gets the attention that it deserves, both from critics and teachers and parents and kids, and that gives it life to continue to share this kind of historical context that is so important, I think, especially for for white kids to understand like, oh, this was a thing that was going on that maybe I'm not learning in my white school. And like, this is really messed up. And when I think about it, this is a thing that's still going on. Like, as a white woman who grew up in a predominantly white school, I would imagine that when I read this as a kid, like some of these moments, I was like, wait, what? You know, and then to be able to continue to ask those questions, it's so important that these books are out there. And that's the power of Kidlet. I really do believe that. Yeah, I think that children's books really kind of make us the people we bec- like we are when we're adults. And so I think it's so important to have stories like this so that we can kind of change an entire generation and make them better than the last. So I think Kidlet is probably the most important literature out there, in my opinion. I might be biased because I'm a kid writer <laughs> but I think it really um it really shapes how our society will look in the next 20 years well you found yourself in the right place then both as a YA author and here on the SSR podcast so that's that's perfect so Lefty Lewis helps Bud get to his desired destination which is Grand Rapids Michigan and Bud wants to go there because he is convinced that his father, who he is convinced is Herman E. Calloway, is going to be there waiting for him. And he thinks that this man named Herman E. Calloway, who is a musician, is his father because his mother had all of these flyers that had photos of Herman E. Calloway and like notes about his different music groups. And so Bud, being 10 years old, is like, oh, this is, you know, this has to be a a signal that this is my father and like this is who I'm supposed to connect with because he's never been told outright who his dad is. So he decides that he needs to go to Grand Rapids and find him and have this reunion. 
when he gets there, it's not at all what he expected. And this is, again, where we really see him being 10 years old. Like, he definitely in his head, I think, was like, okay, Herman's going to see me. He's going to know I'm his son. We're going to ride off into the sunset together. And Bud's first impression of Herman is just that he's too old to be his dad. Like, can it get any more 10 years old than that? <laughs> it really, really is funny, like, just being in his head because his worldview is just so, like, childlike and innocent and just hilarious. Yeah, he was like, well, this guy can't, this this can't be my dad. There's just, like, no way. And, of course, like, we know as adults, like, he could be your dad no matter how old he is. But I'm sure that at 10 years old, Bud has this idyllic vision of, like, a dad is young enough to, like, play ball with you and to, like, do all of these activities. And Herman is old. Um, but not only is Herman old, but he is super rude to Bud. He just is not interested in getting to know him. He doesn't believe Bud's claims that, he is Herman's son. And it's really sad, but Bud does not give up. Like, I have to say, if I were in this situation and I had come this long way, I probably would have kind of just like, you know, had a big sigh and been super sensitive about the whole thing and just been like, okay, fine, I'll leave. But Bud is like, no, I'll, you know, I'm happy to hang around. Everybody else is being nice to me because Herman's band is great. Like, it's this cast of characters that is pretty welcoming to Bud all around, especially Miss Thomas, who is the lead singer. I think they call her the, um, like, the vocal artist or something. Um, they don't just call her a singer because she's better than a singer. But she really takes Bud in and starts to make him feel comfortable. Like, I think she's the maternal energy that he been missing since he lost his mother and he is pretty happy to find himself among this group of musicians even though Herman himself is continuing to let him down at every turn what did you think about this part of the book yeah I felt like it was really warm and uh, I loved his hope and his drive I just felt like it was almost inspiring for me because he just doesn't really give up and he has such a conviction and a certainty about the world and so I really enjoyed like reading it and um, meeting these new characters and seeing his interactions with them as well. Yeah, after this long journey, this this travel portion of the book, which is scary and exhausting, and we're not even sure if Bud's going to have a meal to eat or a place to sleep. Like it's so nice to be in scenes where he is comfortable and protected and we have these like funny musicians who have these big wild personalities. I really loved the scene where they take him to a restaurant and it made me realize how much I take a restaurant for granted. And of course, over over the last year, I've spent a lot less time in restaurants than I used to. So I do think I've regained some of an appreciation for restaurants. But Bud has never been to a restaurant and his like glee over the fact that each person at the table can get something different and then somebody's going to bring it to you and it's going to be warm and then if you want you can get like something else. It was just so sweet and I I just think this author is so talented at writing from a child's eyes because again even as an adult who's been to probably hundreds of restaurants over the course of my life like it did feel new to me. Everything felt fresh. I was seeing it as somebody who had never had the chance to just go to a diner and like get what they wanted from the menu. Yeah, I think it's something I definitely related to reading it because uh, as someone who also grew up working class, I obviously wasn't in an orphanage or anything, but there are so many things that I think people take for granted that are very like new to me. And so like reading someone that was going through something similar and having that joy was just so like wonderful to see because I just love reading Black Joy. And I think I think that the way the author does it is just shows how happy and joyful Bud is just have these very seemingly normal experiences. And because they're so kind of uh, I'm not sure what the word would be, mundane, I guess. I think going to a restaurant is somewhat mundane. Um, a lot of people do it, I mean, before the pandemic. But like the author giving us these mundane experiences and having us see it through Bud's eyes, it almost makes us kind of appreciate things more in reading that. Absolutely. I agree with all of that. And through this whole period of time, Herman E. Calloway himself is continuing to push Bud away. He's very convinced that Bud is trying to take something from him, which I thought was 
interesting and I think also like a choice to demonstrate to readers this kind of like doggy dog mentality of the depression. Like it just, you get this sense that nobody trusts anybody because everybody is struggling during this time period. Like even a 10 year old kid can't be trusted because it's clear that he has nothing and the people who he's around don't have much either. And so they're suspicious of him. Although we meet many very kind strangers in this book, I think Herman E. Calloway's attitude toward Bud is probably accurate to a lot of people during the depression because I'm sure it was very scary. Like you don't know what people are trying to get when you also don't have a lot to give. And uh, yeah, Herman E. Calloway, and I keep saying his full name because Bud always calls him by his full name in the book. He's like very convinced that Bud's going to take something out of his house. And Miss Thomas like doesn't really listen to that. She still sets Bud up in this really nice room in Herman's house. And there's kind of talk about like a little girl that used to live in the room who's gone. And Bud's like, I know what that means. Like that means that she's dead. Why won't anybody ever just say dead instead of gone? But he is like not really put off by Herman's attitude. He continues to make friends with the band. Did you have any suspicions about what was really going on with Herman? Like, did you see the twist that we eventually get coming? No, I didn't see it coming. I think I was so caught up in just Bud's experiences. I didn't see it coming. So you didn't see the twist coming. I didn't really either, even though I had read the book before. I must just not have remembered it. But Bud is like continuing to try to draw these parallels between himself and Herman. Like every time he sees Herman doing something, he's like, oh yeah, like I do the same thing. Like we're the same. That's because you're my dad. And at, at a certain level, like he just wants to prove he's right. I don't think he really wants Herman E. Calloway to be his dad because who would want somebody who's so mean to be their dad? And also he's so much older than Bud expected. But I think Bud just wants to be like vindicated. And he also wants his mom to be vindicated because Bud is so sure that like his mother gave him these flyers as a symbol of like who his father is that he wants to sort of honor her memory, I think. But the twist is that, spoiler alert, Hermione Calloway is actually Bud's grandfather. So Bud's mother, Angela, ran away when she was a teenager because Hermione Calloway was so strict and he put the weight of sort of all of his disappointments on his daughter who was a bright shining star in their family who had a big future ahead of her and it was too much for her and so she left and was never seen again and Hermione Calloway didn't even know that his daughter had passed away until Bud shows up and is like oh yeah like my mom's dead and when he finally reveals her name to Hermione Calloway and Miss Thomas it all falls into place for them. And Hermione Calloway is forced to like grieve his daughter for the first time. And it's just a big shock to him. But it turns out that Bud has been sleeping in his mother's childhood bedroom the whole time he's been with the band, which I thought was really special. I thought it was special as well. And I just really loved the fact that Bud was like right in some way that he had found his family. Because I think he is he's so used to being around strangers who abuse him. I'm just happy that he almost found his way home, even though it seemed unlikely that he would, based on how chaotic everything was before and how he was just following a hunch. But also I just love I just love the commentary that the author was making about kind of the way black people often feel like we have to be perfect and like get these accolades and stuff and I know that um he wanted his daughter to go to um school and just become very successful and I feel like it's really tied to kind of the general pressure there is I can imagine especially during this time to succeed in a society that has constantly wanted you to basically not succeed and I think there's just so much commentary constantly going on in very subtle ways um, and the whole narrative is just deceptively simplistic for that reason. Um, and you think that it's just a, a simple story of like a child trying to meet, like trying to find himself and find his home. But really, I think there's so much more going on and it's showing the d- dynamics between um, different generations of black people, different classes of black people, different ages. And yeah, I just loved that that was a twist instead of him actually being the father. I think it was even better. 
I agree. I thought it, and to your point, it was so nice that Bud was right. Like I really wanted him to get a win. Like I wanted him to, I wanted him to be able to say like, I knew it and I followed through and I made this trip and it was for a good reason. I also didn't want him to be like sad that his dad was Hermione Calloway because he really was so mean to him. And it kind of would have been a bummer if it was like, I guess I'm your dad, but this whole time I've been terrible to you, but I guess now I have to be nice. Like that would have felt sort of unsatisfying as a reader. So this, it felt like the right amount of nuance and complexity and it does allow Bud to stay comfortably. There's this beautiful line that I wrote down. Um, He says, I took my old blanket out and remade my bed with it. I wasn't going to need to carry it around with me anymore because he's home. He's not going anywhere, which just makes you feel good, especially after everything he's been through. Before we start to wrap up, there's one subject that we really haven't gotten a chance to touch on yet, and it's quite literally in the title of this book, But Not Buddy. I think there's a lot about the significance of names in this book. Later on, when Bud gets in with the music group, they make a big deal about giving him the nickname Sleepy LeBone, and like there's this whole conversation about what his nickname's going to be. Much is made over like what Bud calls the different adults in his life. And of course, his own name is so important that it is the title of this book that went on to become one of Christopher Paul Curtis's like most beloved works. So I I wanted to just share um, a quote from Bud's mom that Bud relates to us as readers about why it's so important that nobody call him Buddy. She told him, Bud is your name and don't ever let anyone call you anything outside of that either. Especially don't you ever let anyone call you Buddy. I may have some problems, but being stupid isn't one of them. I would have added that D-Y onto the end of your name if I intended for it to be there. I knew what I was doing. Buddy is a dog's name or a name that someone's going to use on you if they're being false friendly. Your name is Bud, period. Do you have any thoughts on the significance of names in this book? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on it, actually. And I think it was my favorite part of the book because I think especially as Black people and especially African-Americans in this context, naming people and names are so significant because of the history of names in America and in um, Black American communities. Often, like, as we know in history, when, you know, African-Americans were enslaved, uh, they got their names taken from them and like their histories were taken, their voices were taken, very literally, like a lot of things were taken um, and stolen. And so being able to carry a name is so powerful um, in this context. And I love that he kept on correcting people. I, I especially loved that this is a middle grade and we're seeing him have that ownership and conviction in his identity. Because I think for me anyway, as a Nigerian person, like my name has been butchered so many times by non-Nigerian people, but also by white people who want to give me a nickname or don't want to learn the correct way to say my name. And so when I was younger, I often just let it kind of slide and let myself kind of never be called my like who I am. And um, having a middle grade uh, or a, a book for younger readers have a character kind of really show that your name is important to get right and your name is also worth getting right is just so lovely and yeah just such another powerful subtle way that Christopher the author is showing history and is also just showing lessons for black kids to learn. I love what you said about this being a middle grade book and middle grade readers getting a chance to see a kid their own age or, or probably even younger um, taking ownership of their name and of not being afraid to speak up to an adult. I feel like when I was growing up in the 90s, there was like there were all of these rules, at least in my family, about like you just never talk back to an adult. You don't correct an adult. And I understand enough of my own privilege to be able to realize that like as a white child in a largely white community, like those rules probably weren't anywhere near as harsh as like a black child living in my community probably certainly wouldn't have felt comfortable taking ownership of something to the extent that they would like correct an adult, even a white adult. I just, I I really was taken with the fact that like we see a kid here who's like, you know, I'm just going to tell you that that's not my name. Like it doesn't have to be a big deal. I'm not being disrespectful. I'm not trying to be like talk backy. This is just not my name. And I'm just going to take ownership of it. And I'm going to tell you and we're going to move on. And that's something even as an adult, I think sometimes I struggle with 
because at least in like the 90s paradigm in which I was raised, I think I was taught like not to correct people. And like, no, if somebody gets something wrong about you or something as basic as your name, like you have every right to just respectfully like correct them. Yeah, exactly. So I I really thought that was interesting. I'm just fascinated by names in general too, as I think listeners know. So I, I was excited to see that that was a thread that we saw throughout the book. On the whole, I would love to know a little bit about like, how you would feel about passing this book on to a younger person in your life, how it may have held up to, to any expectations that you had for it. I know you didn't read it when you were a kid, so we can't compare it to that experience. But on the whole, I just kind of love to do a little bit of a wrap up on your overall feelings about Bud Not Buddy. So I love this book so much. And I think it's become my favorite, definitely my favorite book set in the, the Great Depression. I've, I, I, lo- I hate it the Great Depression stories when I was younger because they were often written by white people and they were often racist and sexist. And so this is probably my favorite book about that, but also one of my favorite classics now. And I would definitely give this to a child, um, like a, a child, like my little sister, I would give it to her, I would give it to middle grade readers, to adult readers, to teens. I also think it should be studied more in the UK. I really hate the culture of like um, only studying Black books when they are just very, very traumatic and about slavery and colonization. I think that this book teaches you things about history, but is also so empowering and really humanizes Black people and shows that we're more than our struggle. We are human and we deserve to be centered. I'm so glad that you had the chance to read this book for the podcast and that you loved it so much. That's always – sometimes people will read a book for the first time for the podcast and they're like, this was miserable. Like I hated every minute of it. Uh, So I'm so glad that you had the opposite experience. And I feel so happy that I got the chance to revisit this book with a 2021 lens and just like the maturity that comes with an extra 20 years. So thank you so much for choosing it so that we could have this really important conversation on the podcast. Other than Bud Not Buddy, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? So I think it depends on the type of books you like, but I've read a few books I've really loved recently from different like genres. I read uh, The Death of Vivek Oji by Ekweke Amezi and Ekweke Mezi kind of writes these really beautiful like adult literary novels but also there are some like middle grade slash YA that they've written kind of pets by Ekweke Mezi kind of falls into both categories sometimes although I would say it's for older readers because it does deal with some things that um, maybe older readers will be able to handle more but that's just my opinion. And I've also read a graphic novel series called Heartstopper recently. Really love that. It's so lovely. And it's about like these queer teenagers and it's just their love story. I also really loved uh, Avalon High by Meg Cabot. I never got to read Meg Cabot when I was younger because I was not really into reading when I was extremely young because of my dyslexia. But I loved the Disney Channel movie on Avalon High. And so I wanted to read it and see how it compared to the novel. So yeah, those are kind of things I've read recently that I've really liked. I also love this picture book called Eyes That Kiss in the Corners by Joanna Ho. It's just really, really lovely. And it's about like loving yourself as you were born and uh, especially as a child of color, loving your features and loving your family history and just the way you look. Well, thank you so much for all of those recommendations. A few of them are new to me, so I will check them out and I will also link them in the show notes for this episode. But Farida, we have to talk about your book because it has been basically everywhere over the last couple of months. I had so many requests to have you on this year, so I know that we have a lot of listeners that are going to be very excited to hear from you. What can you tell us about your book, Ace of Spades, for those who haven't had a chance to pick it up? Anything that you're willing to share about the writing process or just your favorite parts of it? I just, I can't wait to hear a little bit more from you. Yeah, so um, that's so lovely to hear people were asking for me to be on. Oh yeah, (laughs) lots of people. (laughs) Uh, Ace of Spades is basically kind of pitched as Get Out meets Gossip Girl, or some people say that it reminds them of Dear White People, and it follows Devon and Chiamaka in their final year of high school when an anonymous texter starts sending 
like secrets about them to the entire school and they have to figure out why they're involved especially because they are very different people Chimak is popular and Devon is kind of a wallflower and they have to get together and stop this this person spreading their secrets before things get deadly and yeah I wrote this when I was 18. Um, I was in my first year of university. I live in um, in London usually, but I moved to Scotland for university because I wanted a change of scenery. And I got there and I was just so shocked by so many things because the place I come from in London is very, very diverse. I think that it's mostly people of colour in my town. Also, my high school was 90% black. And so I've always been in the, the, in the majority. So um, I never experienced what it felt like to basically not see myself reflected in people my age. And so I moved to Scotland for university and it was the complete opposite situation. I would go days without seeing a person of colour. I was getting so many microaggressions for the first time. And I actually realised I was working class while I was in university because where I came from in London, everyone was working class. So you don't think about your socioeconomic background when it's the norm and no one questions you on it. So when I got to university and there was people that were wealthy that have been to boarding schools all their lives or like are from international schools and they are just really, really like not having the same issues you're having. It was just a really, really big culture shock to me and just really, really traumatic almost. And so and also I'm a Muslim, so I don't drink. And in Scotland uh, and in the UK generally, the drinking age is 18. And so when people go to university, they really like go wild. And uh. so, yeah, I I basically stayed in my dorm room all the time alone and really struggled to make friends. And so during that time, I wrote Ace of Spades in my first year. And then I got it published in my fourth year. That's when it came out. So I've kind of like been on a journey of publishing at the same time of like graduating and completing my undergraduate degree. Yeah, it was such a weird experience. I'm sure. Well, I'm so happy for you and all the success that it's had. It has been so buzzy here. Um, everybody's talking about it. And I just want to congratulate you because that's an incredible story of how it came to be. And I'm so glad it's seeing the success and the buzz that it deserves. Uh, but I really appreciate your time. And it was so fun chatting with you. I'll be sure to link to Ace of Spades and to all of your information in my posts about this episode so that everybody can go check it out and get to know more about you. But Frida, thank you so much for your time. And I hope we can connect again in the future. Thank you so much for having me on. It was lovely. And I'm so happy I got to read this book. I probably wouldn't have come across it any other way. So thank you so much. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.